Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Laura Palmer of Head of Zeus. So Laura's the publishing director at Head of Zeus, which is one of the larger independent publishing companies in the UK. We covered a lot of ground in the interview, ranging from the nitty gritty of the editorial and submissions process through to the changing nature of the market when it comes to eBooks and also what amalgamation has meant uh, in the UK publishing scene. She was very candid and it's a fascinating conversation, so I'm sure you'll enjoy it. What's your full title, Laura? You're Director of Publishing for Fiction or Director that's, of Fiction that's Publishing? Right. Yes, I'm the Fiction Publishing Director at okay. Head of Zeus. Okay. And could you uh, tell us, a, or tell me, because Cassie's not here, um, a little bit initially about your background and how you got into publishing? Well, I didn't actually know that I wanted to get into publishing. I knew that I wanted to work in something creative, but behind the scenes, I didn't want to be the creator like a writer or an actor but I wanted to be involved in that world. Um, the first internship I did was actually at a literary and talent agency, PFD, and I worked in their film department and I worked in their books department, and I came away thinking, I must work in books. Okay. And what stage was that at when you were at university? Or? That must have been in my first, I think it was my first holiday at university, so I would have been about 20. Sure. And just in full disclosure, Laura and I were at university together, we both did English, although Laura was a year above me. That's I right, think. yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how did, yeah, how moving forward did you, did you, what, you make your first steps in the industry? Well, actually, that was quite a lucky break going to that uh, literary agency because it allowed me to meet uh, a man called Anthony Cheatham who uh, at that point was in his 60s and a publishing entrepreneur, quite well known in the publishing industry. He had just set up a new company called Quercus um, and he suggested that I come along to be their receptionist. So I started at Quercus essentially as their general dog's body, uh, but I was longing to work in editorial. I always had a passion for books and reading and uh, of course I knew that editorial was a very difficult area of publishing to get into. Um, But while I was receptionist, I made myself (laughs) probably extremely annoying, but I tried to make myself very useful by reading uh, submissions for various editors um, in my spare time. And eventually they agreed that I could start as an editorial assistant. And is that uh, kind of entry route of having to do a, a kind of clerical or a sort of dog's body job initially, is that very standard? I think it's quite standard. I believe it's less the case now. Uh, When I was starting out, internships were very ad hoc. There weren't very many professional internships that were paid. It was more that you rang up a lot of publishers and literary agents and uh, went along to be their, I suppose, their office assistant or their admin person. And and you went from there. Um, Now there are a lot more internships that are offered, uh, especially by the big publishers that are paid, but it's still quite an ad hoc, quite a chaotic process in the smaller publishers um, in terms that we have tend to just ring us up and ask if they can come and work for us. And we usually say yes. And so in your case, how long was that period of... Did, were you being paid as an intern? Or? I actually was being paid as an intern at PFD. They, they paid me the princely sum of £5.60 an hour. Okay. Um, and that was, I think I interned with them for about three months. Right. And then how did you move forward from Quercus through to, to where you are now? Well, I suppose it's probably all down to the same man, Anthony Cheatham, because uh, he left Quercus to found a new publishing imprint, Corvus, which uh, was the commercial fiction department of a larger company, Atlantic Books, which publishes literary fiction and non-fiction. 
Um, and he asked me to go with him to be his senior editor. So by then I was by then I was a fully fledged editor. And then after Corvus, Anthony and I and Nick Cheatham um, and one other who's a relation who is a relation who is Anthony's son. Right. Um, and one other woman, Matilda Imlar, who now works in Australia. The four of us left Corvus to set up our own company, Head of Zeus. Okay. Um, and we'll come on to the kind of that the whole setting up a new company and, and so forth in a minute. But could you talk a bit about what your current role involves? Of course. So my current role, I'm the fiction publishing director. And uh, for this company anyway, which is relatively small with 35 staff, um, it's quite a stretched job. We don't have a million people to do uh, subsections of the job. So um, essentially I do three things. Uh, the first and probably the most important is that I am responsible for finding and acquiring new writers for our commercial fiction list. Uh, secondly, of course, I have to publish the writers that I have already acquired and that involves uh, helping to design their covers, uh, having a say in their publicity and marketing, editing their books, working with the authors, updating the authors and managing their careers with Head of Zeus. Um, and thirdly, I suppose the the part of the role that is a director part is that I'm responsible for the strategy of the overall Head of Zeus fiction list and that is a question of making sure we have a good balance of genres on the list, uh, making sure we're publishing the right number of titles, um, that we have the right editors in our team to edit those titles um, and also I have the responsibility for managing some of, the, some of that team as well. Sure. And how does Head of Zeus as an independent firm fit into a publishing landscape increasingly dominated by a number of conglomerates? Well, it's an interesting one. We've actually been doing some work on precisely this uh, at the moment because we are uh, in the process of submitting our presentation for a, a publishing award. Okay. Last year we won the Independent Publisher of the Year Award and we're submitting for the same award this year. Um, so we've been doing some some work on where we where we sit alongside some of the bigger publishers. So We've recently learned that we are um, tenth uh, by uh, volume of uh, revenue. Okay. So we're tenth by revenue of all of, the, of all publishers in the UK, um, and we're third in size revenue again of independent publishers. So it's Faber, then Bloomsbury, then us. Okay. So the landscape is, is what? The, the three big conglomerates. So Hesh or four, is it? Hachette? Uh, I'd say four. PRH. The big four is how they're often referred to. So uh, Penguin Random House, Hachette, HarperCollins, and yeah. Simon and & Schuster. Okay. And then the independents go range from Faber being the biggest. But who's number two? Number two is Bloomsbury. Okay. And we're number three. Okay. Um, and I mean, there are many independent publishers in the UK. And um, some are really, really small. Some right? are really, really tiny. So I may not even know their names. Um, and some are some are bigger than others. I mean, we I think we're relatively rare in that we are an independent publisher that is also a commercial publisher. Most independents. Meaning you have a commercial, you publish commercial fiction, or you're, you're just, just commercial hoping fiction. to make money. <laughs> I think all independent publishers hope to make money, but I suppose I mean that our our strategy for making money. Um, I mean, we we publish fiction, non-fiction, children's books. We publish all sorts. But when we founded the company, it was with a strategy to make money by publishing popular commercial fiction in the most popular genres. Okay. That I think is quite different from 
many independent publishers who set themselves up to find and acquire really interesting literary novels which one day might win the Booker Prize. So we felt that a publishing model for many independent publishers was to have one huge monster hit every three years, let's yeah, say. It's a hits business, right? A hits business, and that would then underwrite the many probably wonderful books that were published but didn't necessarily make much money. Um, I mean, do you, in that landscape of independent publishers, do these firms make money or are they helped by patrons or what's the split with? It, 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 it's, actually, it, it's a mixture. Um, I think some of them uh, make money because they have uh, kind investors who are prepared to bail them out if they get in trouble. If, for example, they don't have the hit that year that they needed, then they have an investor who will plug the gap until they do get their hit. Um, many independent publishers start as independent publishers and then are gobbled up by the uh, conglomerates. For example, Quercus, where I, where I started my career, was bought uh, by Hachette uh, two years ago, I think. Um, so that is now, it still operates with its name, Quercus. It still, I presume, has some modicum of independence and brand identity, but it's very much within a larger corporate now. And what was it like doing something entrepreneurial in this space? I mean, was that something you had wanted to do or did it just an opportunity that came your way? I suppose a mixture of both. I didn't, when I first went into publishing, I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. It was the, the books and the industry and the work that excited me. But the more I worked in publishing, the more I became really engaged with the business side and the strategy side. And I, I decided that I did want to do more of that. Uh, but it is a mixture because I certainly wouldn't have done it without the opportunity presenting itself yeah. uh, by my colleagues uh, at the time at Corvus. Did it feel a big risk? Yes, it did feel risky. Um, it, it, it felt risky and it felt exciting, but I think it was it was a good time for me. I was 28, I was a senior editor um, on a middling salary. I did not have that much to lose mm -hmm. by giving this a go. Yeah. Um, if I'd been further on in my career, if I'd had a bigger salary, if I'd uh, been... Uh, more concerned perhaps with my reputation within the industry than I would have felt like I had more to lose but at the time I, I thought it was absolutely worth a go and I'm so glad I did it it's been uh, exhausting at times um, that it's been very very hard work but it's been huge fun where does the name come from uh -huh. well um, officially the name Head of Zeus uh, comes from the fact that the goddess Athena who is goddess of all wisdom hmm sprang fully formed from the head of Zeus. That was how she was born. She was okay. born from the head of Zeus. Um, so our feeling was that, number one, obviously we are purveyors of all wisdom, be that fiction or non-fiction. And number two, we were forming a company um, at a time when ebooks were just really coming on stream and were allowing you to publish very successfully and very quickly, which is not always the case with print book publishing. So our... Our thing was that we were going to spring to life fully formed as a fully-fledged publishing company within the first six months of okay. being incorporated as a company. And what were the, you know, with yourselves but also other independents, what is the, the importance of independent publishers? You know, what do they do that others don't or what's the distinction? Well, I think there are two things, or at least there's two aspects to that. One is, what do they do for the reading public, for the consumer? Yeah. Well, I would like to think that they keep publishing 
more diverse, more interesting. Um, they prevent uh, everything merging into one block, uh, which I think is 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 bad for reading. We want to have a very diverse. We want to have very diverse types of books. We want to have authors coming from all over the world. We want to have publishers coming from all backgrounds. Um, and I think independent publishers uh, give themselves more latitude to experiment with those kind of things. Um, also, as a as a as a, an employee of an independent company, I think you have a lot more freedom uh, to publish books that you really love. Um, in our company, certainly the editors lead the publishing more than the sales and marketing people. And I've never worked in a big corporate, but I hear that they have a lot more power in terms of what you can and can't acquire. Um, so for me as an editor, independent publisher is a better place to be. Would you, um, I mean, one thing I'm conscious of from my experience when my book was being sold, was it was, it was bidded for by uh, five imprints, which is very flattering. But it, it, what was very bizarre was that multiple of these imprints were within big corporates. So yes. we had this a slightly weird experience of like hiding in the lift so that you know one editor would <laughs> not see us and things. But but my understanding of and I was very baffled as to why two um, different silos of a single company could bid against each other. My agent explained that was because there if there's an external wheel, like an external bidder, they're allowed to do that. But it seems That's that from right. I mean Cat and I were talking about this this morning before her boiler catastrophe. Um, and you know, her view, and I think it's quite an interesting point, is like, as it amalgamates more, is that bad for authors because there's less competition in the market? So, you know, yes, yeah, absolutely. So. I yes, I forgot about authors when I talked about the two the two people that it affects being publishers and the reader. But yeah, I think it is worse for authors to have less competition for their books. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you should say that about the um, imprints and conglomerates bidding against themselves because actually, uh, my understanding is that. I'm not sure which way around it is, but I think that at PRH, mm. only one imprint is allowed to bid. Okay. Um, so agents are only allowed to send to one imprint Has within it, the whole of Penguin Random House. Sure. I'm not sure. Or maybe I've got it Because I know with mine, I and mean, this was in 2015, because I've uh, taken a long time to write my book. But... Um, I think we can say this. Heinemann, who I went with, bidded. Um, Cape also bidded. Ah, okay. Well, perhaps I've got it the wrong way around. Perhaps it's Hachette imprints that are not allowed to well, bid against each other. Well, but then it's Hachette, Little Brown bidded, and John uh, Murray bidded. Perhaps it's a new thing then. Perhaps it's a new thing okay. for PRH. But I've certainly heard, I've, I've actually heard it from agents because oh, really? for agents it's quite complicated because they have to decide from, you know, they have to choose between you know, this huge number of brilliant editors and brilliant imprints in yeah. the same company, they have to choose just one to submit to. And I think for them, it's it can be a challenge to know. I mean, it seemed unutterably, unutterably weird to me, but also it was clearly to my advantage that it was happening. Absolutely. Well, I think, or I think part of the reason uh, for conglomerates allowing that to happen is that if conglomerates are formed by um, buying up other imprints, you know, they want the imprints that they've bought up to keep what it was that made them special in the first place. And I think if you don't give your editors the ability to try and acquire books that they love because you say, well, no, you can't acquire it because so-and-so next door yeah. is, a, you know, yeah, yeah. got there first, then I think it probably makes your editors less motivated. I mean, I remember when we had Laura Barber, we did it at a live event, but um, there was a question from Laura a guy. Laura Barber. Sorry, uh, yeah, Laura yeah, I'm Laura Barber. Yeah, <laughs> it's Barber, confusing. Barber, Barber. <laughs> Laura Barber. Um, previous on the show, but we had a question afterwards um, 
premier journalist of the Economist saying like why do you have imprints like this is you know this is sort of silly was his view from outside like why do you do that and her view I think was you know it was all about taste and and so forth but Absolutely. his view was from a sort of pure business perspective it was insane I don't think it's insane at all. I think that people need to think of it more as companies, you know, not, not, there's nothing special about publishing that means it can't operate in the same way that big global brands like LMVH operate. They own Louis Vuitton and Moet and all sorts of luxury brands, each with their own distinct uh, identity and I would assume perhaps their distinct company culture and so on. Um, I think... Uh, the conglomerates have to have multiple imprints in order for the health of publishing okay. for, for authors, editors, readers alike. Well, talking, talking of brand, my, my next question is about commercial versus um, literary fiction. Mm. Could you, yeah, well, could you first of all say, you know, does, uh, how does that differentiation work? Well, it's, uh, it's subject to endless debate, I would yeah. say, because there is no very clear distinction between commercial and literary fiction unless you are comparing something that is very, very, very mass market with something that is very, very, very literary. I suppose the best distinction to draw is to say that commercial fiction prioritises storytelling and literary fiction prioritises style and prose. But of course, uh, every publisher (laughs) is is looking for something that combines those two elements so um commercial slash literary fiction is you know is its own genre could you give maybe to give some examples of something that would be unintuitively commercial and intuitively literary and then something that would perhaps straddle absolutely so uh, dan brown he is uh, straight down the line, commercial fiction writer. He's a writer of conspiracy thrillers. He prioritises plot over style. I would think most people would agree with that. <laughs> um, personally, I love his books. Um, and I've, I've read many of them more than once, actually, which is probably a bit embarrassing. I should confess that. Um, literary fiction, uh, well, y- y- there are lots of... I mean, any writer probably who's won the Booker Prize would uh, be yeah. uh, considered literary fiction, but let's say Julian Barnes mm. as an example. And somewhere that's awkwardly in the middle? Well, I think the recent success of authors like um, Francis Spufford okay, yeah. um, and uh, who's really, Sarah who's... Perry, who wrote The Essex Serpent. Okay. I mean, it, of course, commercial essentially means it makes money and literary essentially means it's well written so if you get a literary novel like the Essex Serpent that makes money then it by default becomes commercial literary novel yeah I mean one thing a factor I find very interesting is the role of adaptation in TV or film so I was told this is from years ago but when the film of The English Patient came out that that the novel, the Michael Ondaatje novel suddenly shifted enormous numbers of copies and it's you know it's quite a difficult literary novel Yes. And sort of Jake Bean, this is like the most unfinished book ever, <laughs> ever sold. It, it um, makes a huge difference, I think. And any TV or film adaptation coming out will yeah. shift copies of the novel, whether the novel was a good novel or not, whether it was a successful novel. I mean, I wrote a piece years ago in New York um, for, the, for Intelligent Life, so the previous iteration of The Economist's culture thing. And the idea was to find what was the most common title on secondhand bookstores in New York. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was going to be like a fun weekend story. And they were like, yeah, we need uh, economist rigor with this. So I had to, <laughs> I had to count 4,000 books. But the thing what the whole idea was like, if there's loads of your books on secondhand bookstores, is that applauded for a writer or is it a negative thing? 
you know, it's quite that's, unclear. That's a good question. And, but yeah. but a huge number of those books were movie tie-ins uh, and and things that was like and things that were on school syllabuses, so like The Great Gatsby. And yes, Love that makes the Time sense. of Cholera. I feel like there definitely is a, a a type of book buyer who aren't what you would call heavy book buyers, but who consume books that really break the surface in a very very significant way so yeah. I suppose they would uh, perhaps be the ones who might buy Fifty Shades of Grey not necessarily because they want to read some porn but because it's the book that everybody's talking about sure. which in fact was the tagline that Random House very cleverly used on their marketing campaign you know they they knew that this was a book that they could, that was going to had already broken the surface when it had been self-published yeah. and um, they knew just how to appeal to to those book buyers that only read that type of book. I um, think film types fall into that. And what about the, the relative health of those two areas, commercial versus literary fiction? A lot is written about the death of literary fiction. Yes, I think literary fiction is, um, is in terms of author advances and in terms of overall sales, I would say literary fiction is declining. Um, but that is not to say that it's, dead because every year our most successful, most high profile um, authors come from a literary fiction sphere, um, or maybe not the most successful, but certainly the highest profile. Um, so I don't think literary fiction will ever die. I think it's just, if you're a writer, I think literary fiction is a much more high risk strategy mm. because uh, a lot of literary fiction books get published every year and there are only so many prizes and there are only so many slots for a lead review in the Sunday Times and those are the two things that really drive literary fiction sales. Okay. The Sunday and, Times over other newspapers. Oh so no I just use that as an example. Yeah. I mean any any uh, broadsheet I would say sure. um, giving a, a novel their lead review. But, you know space in the reviews yeah, so fine, space for book reviews is shrinking. Um, whereas for commercial novels it's it, it's I would say it's actually a growing area and that's largely Thanks to um, ebooks, which we'll come on to in a minute. But just a, a couple of things here. Um, you you do, you did an English degree as an undergraduate, reading yes. a lot of sort of ultra literary stuff. Absolutely. What what drew you to work in commercial? Well, uh, partly that even though I did an English degree, um, I mainly spent my time reading Agatha Christie novels, and I should have been reading uh, Dickens and Daniel Deronda and so on. So um, I not, suppose not to forget the old English. Not to forget the old English, exactly. Learning how to uh, pronounce thorns and so on um so and at school I only read Jimmy Cooper's and uh, Fiona Walker's and all sorts of um commercial women's fiction so I suppose when I went into uh publishing I I I just wanted to publish the kind of books that I like reading for fun sure um although actually my English degree uh <laughs> sort of led me in the wrong direction because I remember my first uh, job at Quirkus or the first time I was asked to, to read and report on a submission at Quirkus, um, I, I was fresh out of Oxford and I wrote this sort of, I thought, brilliant essay about uh, the author's voice and how well he used pathetic fallacy and so on and so on. And I sort of got this withering note from my, my boss saying, I don't care about pathetic fallacy, I want to know, will your mum buy it? Yeah, which shows how, <laughs> different, how, how different the concerns are, right? That, those, so different. I mean, there's that James Wood essay, I think, which is about... You know the the things that are that 
academic literary criticism shies away from enormously being intentionality and any kind of qualitative judgment, right? Which, which yeah. are, certainly as a writer, are hugely important. Like, what is the writer trying to do and is it working? Absolutely. Doing different things. Um, you mentioned also this, this idea of women's fiction. That's obviously another quite contested term at the, at the moment. Yes. What, how does that... Well, um, yeah, it is a contested term. Um, unfortunately, I think it's a useful term and it's probably the most useful one we've got to describe a certain kind of fiction, which is generally but not exclusively written by women, yeah. but is exclusively set in what we would traditionally call the female sphere. So right. I know, I realise how controversial <laughs> that could be, but um, if you've got novels about uh, wives and mothers and the female experience yeah. um, then it does make sense to call them women's fiction sure. I think it's just we just have to be careful uh, not to assume that that means that women don't also read crime and thrillers and yeah, science yeah. fiction and fantasy I mean there's also a term that we use uh, which is lad lit okay. which um, <laughs> we would use to describe uh Boise adventure or military thrillers, so okay. something by Chris Ryan. Set. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I suppose also there's a other debate about that is how these books are packaged, right? In terms of. Uh... Yes, absolutely. So uh, I know that some female authors have been dismayed to find that their beautifully written literary novel was then packaged with pink and sparkly cover. Right. I mean, yeah. I. It, I does that, if, does if, that, I mean, I would say that's probably a mistake on the publisher's part. Yeah. I mean, you need to package the book according to its contents. Yeah. Um, of course, whether that's it was the publisher's mistake not knowing what they were publishing or the author's uh, does error it not knowing their writing. Does copies, though? I mean, is there, is there a commercial um, rationale for doing that? I mean, Pink and Sparkly is probably quite eye-catching. Yeah. And, uh, well, the tricky thing is that, I mean, yes, it, it, it shifts copies because it is a useful shorthand to describe what's in the book. So people who are looking for a very fluffy beach read, let's say, with cupcakes and, uh, and romance, you know, they need to have that advertised to them on the cover. So I don't feel that it's a problem advertising that on the cover. I think the problem is only when what's on the cover does not reflect what's in the book. Yeah. Can we talk about ebooks now? And, yes. you know, how that was clearly a huge part of the... The, the idea when, when Head of Zeus was launching, and that, I suppose, 2012 was kind of peak ebook panic, right? It this absolutely idea. was, yeah. 20, I think that it was, it was Christmas 2012 that there was the biggest spike in ebook, uh, okay. in ebook sales, and it was because, I think I've got this right, um, I think it was because Kindle that year um, released their, their, their phase two Kindle and aggressively promoted it. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody was unwrapping a Kindle under the Christmas tree that yeah. day. So um, the whole industry, but Hedersus particularly, had this incredible bumper year yeah. for ebook sales around Christmas, um, and ours were—I mean, our strategy had always been to price our ebooks uh, very competitively, which what is to say, <laughs> um, so we generally priced our ebooks, the ebooks that we were promoting, between ninety-nine p and two pounds ninety-nine. And what was the price that other people would do? Well, in 2012, um, and to some extent still now, the bigger publishing houses very frightened about the possibility of ebooks cannibalizing print sales. Mm. So they kept their ebook prices often at the same price of the hard, as the hardback. So, you know, if a hardback was 12.99, the ebook would be 12.99. Yeah. We thought that was 
mad, but, but mainly we just saw an opportunity. We could yeah. see that the big publishers were not pricing their ebooks more cheaply, uh, and that those who were pricing their ebooks cheaply tended to be self-published authors who, in, in many cases, you know, I would say they're, they're, the quality was not as high as yeah. books being published by a traditional publisher. So we were trying to hit that sweet spot of being publishers of good quality popular fiction. And what did that, that mean in terms of the cheap. take for the authors that you were publishing? Well, most authors have the same royalty for uh, e-books, which is 25% of the net receipts that the publisher received. Okay. Um, uh, so if you do price your e-book more cheaply, then they do receive... Obviously, they receive less money per sale. However, we yeah. were yeah we were yeah. I mean we were selling. If your book gets to number one, it tends to stay in the chart for a long time because sure. people uh, often you know, ha- it has a sort of snowball effect. Tail, right? yeah. um, so we were selling you know hun- hundred thousand copies of a one pound ebook, okay. and I think if we'd priced it at seven ninety nine, we might have sold a thousand copies. And how has that landscape evolved in the six years since then? It's evolved a lot. Um, It's no longer the case that the big companies uh, don't promotionally price their e-books. It's now the case that the bigger companies, actually back to our discussion about imprints, um, recently a lot of the bigger companies have been buying up e-only imprints that were started as independent digital-only publishers. And they've now been bought up by the bigger publishers so that they can have a digital first list where they can be more experimental with their ebook pricing, but still keep other of their lists at a higher price. Okay. So there's more competition essentially. And is it correct? I mean, that that idea that you know, we're, I mean, we're sitting here literally surrounded by printed books in this room. Yeah. You know, that that sort of 2012 <laughs> panic that ebooks were going to destroy the codex or whatever. Yeah. Know, that has that gone? Uh, well, no, that never. That certainly never came to pass. Um, Why do you think that Well. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I think partly because books are beautiful, tangible objects yeah. that people love to own. So I think, you know, the printed book survived because it's a great object and uh, it does what it does extremely well. It yeah. remains an extremely good way to read a book. Sure. Um, I think partly ebooks, you know, there's always a novelty factor with with a new kind of format, isn't there? So yeah. I think part of the reason for a huge peak at the beginning was that everybody had just got a Kindle, it was all new, they stuffed their Kindle with lots of ebooks. Some of those ebooks they read, some they probably didn't read. Yeah. And um, and and so then ebook sales are going to, you know, dwindle after that huge peak as people realise that all the ebooks that they bought, they can't they can't get through. Sure, I mean, so do you? I mean, without going into detailed numbers, but how does the market look now in terms of what fraction? Of- well, on the on the Hos, I mean, for for head of use, hmm. we um, it, I think in twenty thirteen we were seeing something like forty percent of our sales in ebook and sixty percent in print. Okay. But the industry was seeing maybe twenty five percent ebook. Yeah. Um, now. For head of use, we're looking at more 35% E, 65% P, and I think the industry as a whole is perhaps 20% ebooks, 80% print. And which way do you see it going? I think it's basically stable now. Really? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you look to America, it, it's stabilised at somewhere around those numbers. I could, I mean, I could be off by, by a few percent, uh, but I think it's stabilised at around 80 20. And what tends to, to Work as an ebook and to. Ah uh, well, again, it's back to the commercial, the literary fiction uh, discussion because yeah. in commercial fiction, um, or let's say genre fiction, because that's easier to define. So if you're talking about uh, 
crime and thrillers or science fiction and fantasy or some kind of genre where there are conventions to obey um, is probably about 40% of the sales okay. of that uh, of that area in E. What about sort of porn? Um, or is well, that the wrong I, word, erotica? No, I know, we probably shouldn't call it porn. It's definitely erotica, erotica. Yeah. I thought that when I said it last time, actually. Um, so erotica, I don't actually know because Head of Use doesn't publish any erotica, so I okay. haven't really been looking at the figures, but I mean, certainly when Fifty Shades of Grey exploded onto the scene, you could, exactly. So I think a big a big part of why ebooks have been so successful for commercial fiction is partly, you know, the shame factor. People don't always want to be seen reading... Um, an erotica, a novel, and perhaps people don't even want to be seen reading, you know, a very mass market thriller. Yeah. Also, of course, it's the it's the question of uh, space. You know, if you're reading a book that is essentially um, a piece of escapist fiction that once you've read, you move on to the next. You know, yeah. it doesn't stay with you. It doesn't need to be especially memorable. Um, you don't want to keep it on your shelf. You don't want to give it that space in your life. You yeah. want to consume it in the way that you consume an episode of, you know, a box set. And in, in contrast, how have printed books evolved? I mean, it seems that the whole idea of the book as artefact, the beautiful book as well, that's in some ways driven by the same phenomenon, right? So, yeah, I was talking to Cassie about this morning again, you know, this idea of these very elaborate covers, very yeah. you know, high-quality paper, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I, feel, I do feel like the printed book has got more beautiful and more highly produced since the advent of ebooks. Mm. Now, that could be partly because there's a lot more competition now for printed books. So you, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's less space for them now uh, in bookshops. So to make yours stand out, you have to make sure it looks the best, it's priced the best, yeah. um, and obviously has to have the best uh, content as well. Do you, do you, is there any difference in the editorial process that goes into your e-only books and your print books and um, again often in journalism stuff that is for the web gets you know less I would I, purely because of the amount of e-only publishing that we do we have very big lists that are e-only yeah. they don't get as many proofread sort of editorial they don't go through as many editorial processes proofreads and the like yeah. um, th- th- as our printed books but they still I'd say they still get a, a very decent amount of editorial time spent on them because you're still asking somebody to pay for it you're still asking them to immerse themselves in the world of the book and you don't want anything in the book to pull them out of that you mentioned earlier briefly self-publishing where do you see that fitting into the landscape well that's an interesting um that's an interesting part of publishing which i think will change quite a lot purely because Amazon now has its own publishing company. So Mm -hmm. Amazon is not just a retailer anymore. It has, I think, possibly three or even four publishing imprints. And uh, one of the ways that they are acquiring their authors, understandably, is looking to which self-published authors have been really successful within the Amazon ecosystem and then offering them a publishing contract. So it strikes me that a lot of self-published authors are now becoming traditionally published by digital only publishers. But at the same time, I mean, the way, the way it's described to me, though, in a sort of deep wary of that thing, was like it's a sort of unicorn thing. That's sort of the tip of the iceberg. The ones who, who have a lot of success as self published and then jump the fence, you know, they are the, the 1% or the. Yes, that's true. That's true. Actually, I don't know so much. Yeah, no, I think you're quite right. I don't know so much about the, um, about the base of the iceberg, actually. Yeah. The, I mean, I know that there are 
a lot of self-published authors, you know, on the kind of Kindle free list. And then, of course, there's other sites. So Wattpad has a very, you know, large community of self-published authors that read each other's work. Um, Would you countenance it as a wise thing for an aspirant writer to do? Or do you think that they should push for... I think writers should push for a publisher in the first instance. But, you know, I know more than anyone how, um, how, how competitive it is to find a publisher. And if authors really believe in their work and they haven't managed to find a publisher, then, then absolutely they should go the self-publishing route. Um, I think it offers a lot of opportunity. But I think I'd probably advise it as a stepping stone rather than a permanent, yeah. uh, rather than a permanent plan. Can we talk a bit now about the actual mechanics of editing? You know, the, some of the documents you sent over and this fascinating phrase, author management. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, well, um, I think, you know, we... Uh, what does that involve? Or? Uh, well, author management involves, I suppose it essentially involves keeping my authors happy and motivated. And, or at least uh, sane. And yeah. sane. And also, I should, I should mention that I'm married to an author, a, a historian, so I know a little bit kind of firsthand on how, um, on how authors can be while they're writing. I think it can be a very lonely job being an author. Yeah. You don't have anybody to bounce your ideas off. You don't have a team saying, yes, that sentence is great, or yeah. I love that character. And your editor and your literary agent as well, you know, they, they become that team. Yeah. Um, so I definitely see part of my job as, as making the authors feel that I'm there for them and I'm supporting them. Um, of course, sometimes in my job I have to not just be, you know, kind and supportive. Sometimes I have to uh, be a bit more punchy, maybe make them hurry up with their writing, hit their deadlines. I mean, I thought another very interesting point that you, you raise, and I really, really agree with this, is that it needs to be a collaborative, not confrontational relationship. You know, Absolutely. I, I certainly, journalistically, when I was starting out, I used to hate being edited, really, really hate yeah. it. And the more now, as I've been much better at setting up that relationship as a collaboration actually if you feel you're on the same team working to a common objective everything's different absolutely it's all about yeah it's all about the collaboration and I think as an editor as well it's very important that you remember that you are the editor you are not a writer you're a reader and when you're editing a manuscript you're you're acting as your author's first reader and you need to respond in a way that a reader responds so you you absolutely should be querying how the book makes you feel does it make you want to turn the page? Does this character make you sad or happy? Yeah. It's that kind of, it's that level of, uh, of focus, I think. And what, as editors, we should not be doing is trying to rewrite a book or say, oh, well, if I'd created that character, I would have done it this way. Yeah. Because that just, firstly, it sets up conflict. And secondly, you know, that's not actually where my skill is. I'm not a writer. Could you talk a bit about the process, about literally from, you know, the, the first drafts coming in through to those conversations, discussions, how does it, maybe using an example... It's, it's, it's case by case according to each author, but on the whole, we will receive the, the, a submission from a literary agent, yeah. uh, and if we decide to acquire that submission and publish that author. Um, firstly, for my list anyway, which as I said is a commercial fictionist, it's quite, um, I, I would usually be acquiring multiple books from an author, so perhaps oh, really? three books in a series. Or always? Not always. Even, but, even as from a debut? 
Even from a debut, really? yeah. Um, because w- well, one of the things that we wanted to do at Editus is publish series authors and yeah. make sure that we're investing in authors, not in one-off books. I mean, it, partly because that's what we love reading and partly because it's actually more savvy as a, as a way of investing money. Every right. penny you invest in book one will also see a return in book two and three. Um, and three is the sort of minimum. No, no. Sometimes it's two books. Sometimes it's three books. This one's like seventeen. I don't. I don't think I've ever done a deal for seventeen new books. But we've done deals for backlist, backlist uh, series that have already been written yeah. for you know. I think twenty. And these books. Would these be like crime or detectives? Or um, well, crime is. How do you how do you keep like flogging that horse through? <laughs> crime is great for series because you can have a character a detective that yeah. you know d- discovers new crimes for, for each book um, you we've got some series that are based around some romances that are kind of based around a village community in yeah. a in sort of lovely place we've got one set in Cornwall um, but you don't do erotica so it's all, it's all erotica. stop at the bedroom door <laughs> Um, there is some sex is in our books funnily page. enough actually the books I publish the most sex occurs in, all, in the crime and thrillers okay. I think you know perhaps readers readers like you know their dead bodies to be <laughs> to come along <laughs> along with some sex scenes I don't know um, so yeah so we're very keen on series but that but not exclusively and sometimes we'll do one book deal I mean it is it is case by case yeah. but it makes it even more important that you forge a good relationship with the author because you're going to be working with them for quite a long time and the manuscripts you get what kind of state are they in are they if they come from a literary agent they're in a very polished state because yeah. the agent will have worked very closely with the author uh, in order to get them their first deal so it's often the case that the first book we receive um, it's kind of it's is good to go and perhaps it will need one quite light edit where I will read through and make some macro notes uh, yeah. for the author that are generally about character plot and setting that's how I tend to split them out and then we'll go on from there there are two further editorial stages after that one is the copy edit which is done by a freelancer and that's about spotting consistency errors yeah. um, I suppose it's a bit like self-editing in a newspaper and the last is proofreading, which is a final check for spelling and grammar. I mean, how, how major surgery would you do on something? Or would, it, would you only take something generally that you feel... Or maybe, well, maybe what well, for a first would... novel, it would be rare. For a novel that's come from a literary agent, which, as I say, is usually quite polished, it would be rare to do major surgery on that novel because it's already been worked on. Um, it's often the case that the second novel is, um, for whatever reason, not as polished. Partly that's because the literary agent might not work on it that time. Because and it's a difficult second album, right? Partly it's because it's a difficult second album, exactly. An author's first novel is usually something that's, you know, they've been yeah, longing to write for ages, yeah. it's sprung out of their head, fully formed, like kind of these. Um, and their second novel, they're writing with a deadline, they're under pressure, they're wondering if they can match the success of the first book. The second novel, I find, is where I need to do the most hand-holding and sometimes yeah. the most surgery. And over the years, what I've realised is if I'm more involved at the beginning of the process, helping an author to write a really, really good plan, uh, helping them write a great Do you synopsis. advocate plans? Because we, well, some of the novelists we've had... I am a big believer in plans. Some of the novelists we've had on top of what it is, the planner versus the plunger. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the plunger. Okay. I think it's all about a plan. I mean, partly because as somebody who reads a lot of submissions from literary agents, you know, the most frustrating thing is when you have a brilliant book with a terrible ending okay. because you spend all that time reading it thinking, I love it, I love it, I want to buy it. And then you get to the end and you think, oh, it all falls apart and there's no way of fixing it. And that does happen um, surprisingly often. And I think that's because an author didn't plan. They didn't know where they were going with it. They had a brilliant idea um, and then they couldn't make it all hang together. So... 
I do you push a kind of act structure, you know, the Shakespearean five? Or the... I t- I would if an author asked for something quite prescriptive, then I would usually go for a three act structure. Yeah. Um, and then if they wanted ending it to be broken down sorry <laughs> ending in a wedding ending in a wedding yeah exactly exactly I mean there's plenty there's you know if they really want something uh, really broken down then there's some quite good resources online that I would direct them to which are one um, so there's this brilliant novel uh, sorry not novel there's this brilliant book called oh, I'm going to get its name wrong I think it's called story. Save the Cat okay have you heard of it no that? I haven't uh, it's actually we'll written it by it's actually written by a, uh, a screenwriter okay um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'll probably garble the specifics, but it basically yeah. goes through a very uh, specific structure of um, when you establish your major theme, when you introduce your major character, when you introduce your first conflict, when you yeah. resolve that conflict, when you introduce your second conflict, and so on. Yeah. And um, I think that really it's too prescriptive to actually follow sure. rule by rule, because what you'll end up uh, if you do that, you'll end up with something that has no heart and no soul and just feels like writing with numbers. But for somebody who is struggling to plan their novel, I think it can be quite a useful, uh, useful first step. And can we talk a bit about you know the the funnel that is bringing this material into you? So is is do you only look at agented submissions? No, we actually do look at unagented submissions, which is quite rare for publishers, but especially because we're an independent publisher and we can't always compete with the with the big uh, with the big companies for very big novels from big important agents um so we set up um a submissions portal on the head of use website where as an author you can go and upload your manuscript and you have to fill in a form about your book we'll put a link there if you do absolutely yeah we'd love to we we're very much open for submissions and we'd love to see them um but you know the, the 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 difference in uh in in commercial uh quality well, some of them are very good, but perhaps... Have you published anything through that? I th- so far, we found one uh, We found one psychological thriller author okay. um, on the submissions portal. And Out on the non-fiction side, we found one uh, illustrated non-fiction about allotments called A Hut of One's Own. Okay. So that's two authors, and that's probably two authors out of probably two or three thousand submissions right, okay. so I'd say the hit rate on the submissions portal is about one in a thousand and what are the you, hit rate with agents more like one in a hundred what are you on that submissions portal how much are you asking for or what's uh, we ask for I think we ask for the full manuscript actually oh, really? um, okay. or we may ask for the first three chapters I actually I, I can't remember uh, certainly it's rare for me to read beyond the first three chapters yeah um, and we also ask the author's for a synopsis. Uh, for a synopsis, information about themselves, uh, where they see the book sitting in the market, that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, again, we try and talk as sort of honestly as possible about the gritty details of this. And again, mm-hmm. bouncing about with Cassia, our view is sort of, if you're trying to you know, be a writer, and this is our experience, like you either kind of know someone in publishing who gets you an agent, like, yeah. and that, and then they, and then it sort of goes that way. Yeah. Um, and the, the, our, our sense is like this sort of theoretic, completely open thing of, you know, you can submit and it goes on a slash pile. Like, whenever I master write something, I just do whatever you can to avoid that route. Like, just get... Do some, everything. You know, you know, yeah. But, you know, I was, again, it's been very honestly introduced to my agent by a colleague and yeah. stuff like that. You know, it seems that there is this funnel which, which raises these issues of, like, you know, it's people you went to university with or it's Absolutely. people you work with. And, Absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's why publishing is currently having this sort of crisis of diversity. Yeah. And, you know, to, to its credit, publishing is trying to do something about that. But a lot of the 
Um, a lot of the publishing houses have started up new lists that are specifically for BAME authors right. and that sort of thing. Um, but that's one thing that's really about ethnicity and diversity. But what you're talking about is more about, I suppose, opportunity, education. Yeah. It's certainly the case that most people who get published have been... Um, have had a university education and yeah. have made contacts in the world that then leads them to their agent and finding their publisher. However, um, talking to agents, there certainly are some authors that they represent that have simply come in on the slush pile. Yeah. And um, and and I so I, so that's so that's one route. And I think there's another route which is a bit more democratic as well, which is the sort of social media route. Sure. So I think if you can. If particularly for a non-fiction author, if you can build yourself a following on YouTube or on a blog or on uh, Twitter, do a Jordan Peterson. Do a Jordan Peterson, Peterson yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, then you know that is a route that is open, uh, that is more democratic. I think open to everybody. I mean, the other thing I think that is often not kind of discussed in this debate is you know not only are the numbers in the kind of slush pile route against you, but like the person reading the slush pile, you know, they're likely, okay, they're often likely to be very smart and things, but they're also likely to be 22, right? Often. And, that is sometimes the case, know, yes. Um, in just, and I can see yes. that, you know, it's a volume. And it, and it, can, get, it can get brutal. I mean, yeah. we sometimes, I mean, on the whole, the editors actually do, actually, at Head of Zeus, the editors read the submissions portal yeah. themselves. It's not always me, sometimes it's an assistant editor, but it's someone in the editorial department. Yeah. But at other places I've worked, you know, the, the slush pile, such as it was, was exclusively read by interns. Yeah. And actually at one, at one place, you know, there was a sort of, it sounds so brutal, but there was a kind of checklist given to interns with this very uh, basic um, uh, sort of point system, which is, is it written by a man or a woman? So a woman gets more points. Is it written by a UK really? author? A woman, or gets, a more U- points. woman right. gets more points. Women gets more points. Female authors... Uh, I mean, it's a it's very in commercial. Thing. It's this in is commercial. in commercial. Again, this is all, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is in commercial fiction. So it was man or woman, uh, UK or US based. So UK is better. Uh, first novel or you know has been previously published. And which is novel, better? Than that? First novel is better. Yeah. Because if they've been previously published, the likelihood is that they haven't succeeded with that novel. It can be much much harder to re-energize someone's career um, if you've got negative sales figures for a sure. previous book. You know, and on, on the whole, the publishing industry and booksellers and so on, they, they kind of, they love something new and shiny. And if you haven't made out in advance, right, as well, that's a yeah. big issue. Yeah, that can be an issue. Exactly. And does that, I mean, that's come up in all the interviews of like the potential double-edged sword of a big advance. Yes, right? yes. Uh, yeah, if you get a big advance and you, and, you, and you don't earn it out, then that can be a career killer. Yeah. But on the other hand, you've got quite a lot of money, so yeah. maybe you just go and. Uh, I mean, maybe and, you could and, go and found your own publishing company. How do the independent publishers, you know, particularly in the commercial space, are your advances um, comparable to the big ones? I'd say they go. Our advances go up to the sort of the upper middle range of okay. advances. I think the most that we've paid ahead of use is probably a hundred thousand pounds, which is a lot. But some of the, I mean, I lost a book recently to um, to a company which was rumoured to have paid five hundred thousand pounds for a commercial novel. For three, it was for it was for three books. Okay. Um, and it was for it was for world rights, which means that they could potentially make that back that money by yeah. selling it abroad. But still, I mean, that is a huge amount of money. That's the kind of money that if we at Head of Zeus, you know, risked that that 
amount of money on a book that yeah. could potentially sink the company if the book didn't work. I mean, the other thing, I, I was having a discussion with my dad, who's an academic about how books are sold, and he was, the point he made as a sort of somewhat sceptical outsider, I think it applies to the creative industry as a whole, is like, if you're a university doing, you know, this is procurement, right? Fundamentally, this is a procurement piece. And, you know, if you're a public body or anything like that, there's all sorts of, like, stuff you have to show about, you know, not conflict of interest, and mm. it's put out fair to tender and everything like that. And, like, you know, TV series or, like, creative stuff always happens because someone knew someone else, right? I mean, it seems like that's, uh, you know, it is, it is run. It's a people, it's a people it's thing. It's very right? much a people business, and yeah. that, can, that can go both ways. I mean, if you are... Personable yeah. and charismatic, and you're able to, you know, impress people that you meet, yeah. and then through that route meet other people. Then that is certainly a way of, you know. I mean, my my view has always been, yeah, that like it's not worth expending time or emotional energy on on being, you know, angry about how it works. Like there are very clear, no. you know, there are very clear. It, it's a functional supply and demand. Unfortunately, right? you have to you have to work within the system yeah, rather than it, work against it. Exactly. Otherwise, you won't get anywhere. It's much more advantageous to just work out how to make it to your advantage. But and ultimately, it's all a function of like lots of people want to be writers. You know. That's it's, it. Uh, it's a supply. Exactly. It's a supply and demand. It's a question of supply and demand. Um, yeah, there are lot, there are lots of writers out there. And there's a final thing. Are there um, are there anything sort of things you wish authors knew, or you wish that aspirant writers knew? Classic things to avoid. Um, oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I suppose I wish all, more authors planned their novels. So okay. that's one thing. Um, I think I wish that authors knew that they, in order to be a high quality writer and write beautiful stories you don't need to overwrite i think the uh there are some quite self-consciously literary writers starting out in their career who try too hard to use flowery language or long words and yeah certainly my experience like that's what journalism is quite good at beating that actually my experience of publishing journalists has been brilliant because they know how to hit deadlines uh they know how to use ordinary words to you know write an extraordinary story and they tend to be the ones who who uh who don't go overboard although there are i think there are there are other issues journalists have where like it's it can sort of hack problem can be the other the other side of that. I think. Yes, no, that's um, also true. I mean, you do need you you know. Having said that, that you know there are lots of sort of, kind of uh, rules and conventions surrounding um, surrounding popular fiction and genre fiction, but at the end of the day, it has to come from the author's heart. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they have to. Uh, there has to be that spark. There has to be that X factor. Um, I suppose that's what makes a job quite exciting and means that it changes all the time is that that X factor can come in so many different ways. Sure. Well, look, Laura, thanks so much for speaking so informatively and so openly. Um, and we'll, we'll put uh, links in the show notes to the, the portal and then some of the other things you've discussed and wishing you all the best for your project. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that. Now, a quick update from us, Simon. Uh, I have landed another section of my book uh, at 4am on Tuesday morning. Uh, so I'm still a bit dazed, but that's good. There's only three more left now. So the end is um, kind of in sight. Uh, and I've also done some um, major tidying up of my writing cave that's rendered my environment more salubrious. Cassia, what about you? Writing cave? cave. Sure. You, you've been there. 
Mm, yeah, uh, I am a bit grumpy because Simon made me lock my um, dog outside because apparently it was working its tail too loudly. Um, but apart from that, I'm pretty good. I had to just, I, I just spoke to um, a special effects guy for The Shape of Water about how to make um, fish butts sexy, which was quite an interesting conversation. It's a transferable skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Olivia Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Zara Hankia looks after our social media. Uh, our music is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar. And we're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And we're on, what's the last one? Website. Our website is <laughs> alwaystakenotes.com. Uh, and it would be really helpful if you could give us a review on iTunes. It helps other people uh, find us and, and listen to our wisdom. Lavish praise only is acceptable. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.